16, Paul wraps up his instructive letter to the church at Corinth with a salutation or two. For 15 chapters now, the apostle has been addressing problems in this church. He has rebuked the Corinthians for their divisiveness. There were divisions and schisms among them. He's called out blatant immorality in their midst and demanded that they exercise church discipline. He's reprimanded church members for actually suing each other in the secular courts. Paul has cleared up the church's confusion regarding marriage and divorce and singleness. He's addressed the issue of meat sacrificed to idols and, of course, the broader subject of Christian liberty. And then Paul took up matters relating to the public meetings of the church, male and female roles, the Lord's Supper, finding your place in the body and spiritual gifts, even speaking in tongues. And, of course... He spoke of the supremacy of love. I could remove mountains, but if I have not love, I am nothing. In a sense, reading 1 Corinthians is like climbing a mountain. From chapters 1 through 14, you scale upwards from ledge to ledge to ledge. In chapter 15, you reach the summit. And of course, we studied We saw how Paul trumpets the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus. He also discusses in chapter 15, resurrection in general, the importance and the mechanics of the transformation of our bodies. But once you reach the summit, you got to come down. And now that's what Paul does in this morning's text. In chapter 16, he ends this rangy and rambling letter to the believers in Corinth with a series of conclusions. One commentator titles this chapter, Needs, News, and Notes. This is Paul's salutation. And he begins his conclusion with some instructions about a collection. Verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints. Now realize Paul has been taking an offering from the Gentile churches for the first church Back in Jerusalem, the Jewish Christians had fallen on hard times. The whole region of Judea was suffering a famine that had left many, many people hungry and homeless. Remember, too, in the early chapters of Acts, the first believers sold all that they had, and they pooled their resources. They were so caught up in their love for one another that they put personal stewardship aside, and they thought only about each other's welfare. Though this was prompted by God's love, it was never presented as God's will. And it may not have been the wisest move. In fact, perhaps some of their current financial hardships were the result of it. There were two other factors that motivated Paul to take up this offering. Paul knew that the Gentile Christians owed the original Jewish church a huge debt of gratitude. Remember, it was thanks to the boldness of those Galilean fishermen that the gospel had gotten off the ground. In face of great danger, Peter and John had proclaimed the news of the resurrection, even when it meant their imprisonment. It was also the leaders in Jerusalem that recognized that God was doing a new work in the world, that Jesus offered salvation apart from the law, that you didn't have to first become a Jew in order to gain God's acceptance. Righteousness in Christ is by faith and faith alone. This meant grace for every race. 
It opened the door for an avalanche of Gentiles to pour into God's kingdom. Churches were springing up all across the Gentile world, and they all could trace their spiritual heritage back to Jerusalem. Since the Gentiles owed the Jews their salvation, (laughs) why not help them out with some groceries? And this offering would also go a long way toward building a bridge between Jew and Gentile Christians. Actually, in Christ, there is no longer such a thing as Jew and Gentile. In Christ, we're one, no matter our race, no matter our culture. The walls of division have been broken down in Christ. We are one new man, a third race, if you will. This was a spiritual reality, but Paul knew it would be reinforced and made more tangible by this special offering. And there was one more very, very personal reason that Paul collected this benevolence for the Jerusalem church. I'm sure that he was feeling personally responsible for some of the physical challenges they faced. Why was this church in Jerusalem saddled with so many widows to feed? Well, it might just have been because of an angry rabbi named Saul who had persecuted them. Paul, who was previously this Saul, had confiscated their possessions and had incarcerated them and had even murdered some of the Jerusalem believers. No wonder he now wants to do what he can to help these believers in need. And so, he collects an offering. He continues, As I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. This wasn't just Paul's appeal in Corinth. In all the Gentile churches, he was gathering this collection for Jerusalem. Here he mentions Galatia, the churches in Iconium and Lystra and Derbe. The Syrian church in Antioch also added to the collection, as did the churches of Asia. And of course, the Macedonian churches of Philippi and Thessaloniki also added to it. It was only right then that the Corinthian church also contribute to this cause and help out their Jewish brothers. In verse 2, he tells them how to proceed in collecting this offering. He says, on the first day of the week. Now, this is a detail with some provocative implications. Understand, for centuries, true believers met on the last day of the week, on Saturday, on the Holy Sabbath. That was the day of worship. All of a sudden, though, these early Christians have abandoned 1,500 years of tradition. They're now meeting on the first day of the week or Sunday. What would cause such a monumental shift? Well, it should be obvious. The resurrection of Jesus was on the first day of the week. And so now to commemorate His resurrection, the Christians had begun to gather together and meet and worship on Sunday. And when the church gathers, Paul commands them, let each one of you Lay aside, lay something aside. Let each one of you lay something aside. Now the Greek word that was translated collection back in verse 1 is the word logia. It refers to an extra collection. A collection that was not required, it was not mandatory. In the scriptures, understand, the tithe belongs to the Lord. The first fruits of your income is not your money. It's God's property. That's why you steal from Him when you keep it for yourself. You remember the prophet Malachi 
addressed this with the people of his day. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have you robbed me? And he answers them, in tithes and offerings. By holding back their regular offering, they were robbing God. Realize, this is not a big deal because God needs our money. It's that we need to give to God. Giving financially to God gives tangible expression to my faith. It takes faith out of the theoretical and brings it into the practical. It makes faith real. The tithe is a discipline that my faith needs. It honors God on a regular, weekly basis. It reminds me that I'm dependent not on the job, not on the boss. I'm dependent on God. Once there was a little girl, she had just learned to tie her shoes. She started to cry. Her father asked her, honey, why the tears? She said, because I now can tie my shoes. He said, but honey, it's not that hard, and, and now you know how. She answered, yes, I know, but I just realized I'm going to have to do this for the rest of my life. And this is true of a believer's giving. Not the crying part. <laughs> but that it's consistent and it's regular and it needs to be a lifelong discipline. Joyful giving is part of a Christian's discipleship. It's essential to our spiritual growth. Without it, our faith will be stunted. And yet here, Paul is not talking about the Corinthians' regular offering that went to the support of the ministry of the local church. This was an extra collection taken to provide relief for hungry believers in a faraway place. Now, I don't think some of us realize the difference between our tithe or our regular giving and a special or extra collection. Quite frankly, we see this here at Calvary Chapel. From time to time, we think it appropriate to highlight a special need that's worthy of our support. Hurricane relief, or Bibles to China, or mission work in Trinidad. Here's our dilemma. Whenever we spotlight a special ministry beyond the four walls of our church, it tends to overshadow the local needs, legitimate needs. And the offerings earmarked for Calvary Chapel can get shortchanged. As a church, what good does it do for us to give overseas if we can't meet our obligations at home? This happens. And the answer is to understand the difference between regular giving and extra collections. It's like the cartoon I found. The elder is speaking to the pastor and he says, Sorry, pastor. The bad news is we voted down your cost of living raise, but the good news is you're now eligible for assistance from the food pantry. <laughs> this hasn't happened to me. It's just a joke. But it could happen if we don't... If we don't understand and distinguish between regular and extra giving. In January 2012, CNN reported on an event in Atlanta where 42,000 college students gathered to worship God and to raise funds to stop human trafficking. Their goal was to raise a million dollars. And CNN was impressed. One camera captured a fella pulling a $50 bill out of his wallet putting it in the offering. But let's put this in context. Imagine two 20-something aged men. One of them is a student. He works part-time. 
He lives on an allowance that's given to him by his parents. He goes to this event and he feels led by God to donate $50 to a worthy cause. CNN applauds him. Pardon the expression, but I see this as sort of glam giving, glamorous giving. He sees where his money goes. Folks see him give it. But now imagine another guy, fresh out of school. This fellow's working a job that pays a modest $36,000 a year. And this guy ties his money. He gives $3,600 a year to his local church, which then helps to pay the salary of a youth pastor who cares for the kids in his neighborhood. This keeps the lights on in the church. This provides benevolence to needy folks in his community. This spreads the gospel in places around the world, and this funds a steady stream of teaching and ministry for many, many years. This man's giving is under the radar. It's not reported on by CNN. But in my opinion, it is far more substantial. It supports the local church, the backbone of the body of Christ. Here Paul is asking the Corinthians to lay aside something for a special cause. But it's understood that it shouldn't take away from their regular giving. And then he says, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. Now Paul wants the church to take care of this issue before he arrives. And this was probably for several reasons. First, he has other matters that take precedent. Thus, when he gets there, he doesn't want to waste his time on this. This is something that the Corinthians can wrap up on their own. And second, these extra offerings should be decided on at home, in prayer, before God, without the pressure of the pitches and appeals you might run into at church. Notice Paul encourages them, storing up as he may prosper. We probably, don't re- we probably don't emphasize this enough. But you need to realize an important biblical truth. It's, it's just a truth. What you get is in direct proportion to what you give. That's just blunt. That's out there. But that's just the truth. It's a principle. Paul writes of it in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. It's true. You reap what you sow. It's a spiritual principle. Give a lot, you'll get a lot. Give a little, and you'll get a little. Like the man who once said, I shovel out and God shovels in. And God has a bigger shovel than I do. Indeed, he does. Paul continues speaking about this offering in verse 3. He says, And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. Now, this was some real wisdom on Paul's part. He wanted a representative of the people who gave the money to escort the offering to its destination. Paul was very careful to be accountable for the monies that God provided. Acts chapter 20 verse 4 lists the representatives of the various churches who actually carried this money to Jerusalem. And likewise, we here at Calvary Chapel are accountable to God and those who give for the money we spend. Once a year, we publish a financial statement. 
And we show how the money that's given to us, that's been given to God, gets used in the ministry of our church. It's important to maintain that accountability. And then verse 5 tells us, No, I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia, and it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. Acts chapter 20 tells us, after Paul's journey through Macedonia, he spent three months in Greece, probably Corinth. But his plans changed when he ran into hostile Jews. He was intending to sail on to Syria, but instead he doubled back through the cities of Macedonia. Obviously, Paul's plans were always flexible. And this is why he writes in verse 7, For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. And I think this is important. Paul's plans were always predicated on the Lord's will. Paul always gave God permission to trump his plans with circumstance. Now, this doesn't mean that Paul didn't make plans or he was a fickle person that you couldn't count on. Paul was a man of his word and he followed through. But Paul realized that God had the right to change his plans. As it's been said, man proposes, but God disposes. Paul understood that God was bigger than his plans. You know, the early Methodists had a saying. Sometimes they would use it in their letters. They would even add it to their salutation. They would write the initials D.V. It stood for a Latin phrase, Deo Valente, which meant God willing. We'll do this or that, God willing. If the Lord permits, you know, sometimes He doesn't. Bad weather, a lack of funds, an illness, even persecution and jail time was seen by Paul, not as a distraction from God's will, but as part of his divine guidance. It's interesting to me, Paul ascended to the third heaven. He saw visions too glorious to talk about. But he also saw divine guidance in God's manipulation of daily circumstances. Like a good GPS, Paul saw God as sovereign over his every situation, at times recalibrating his path. Paul knew the truth. A bend in the road is not the end of the road if you're willing to take a turn. you got to be flexible. It was Alexander Graham Bell who said, When one door closes, another opens. But we often look so long and regretfully at the closed door that we do not see the one that has opened for us. Not so with Paul. He was always looking for the open door. Well, he mentions in verse 8, But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, that is, late spring, for a great and effective door has opened to me. And there are many adversaries. Speaking of open doors, Paul said that's why he wanted to stay in Ephesus. Ephesus was where the action was. There were many open doors for the gospel. You remember in Acts chapter 19, you can read about the great spiritual awakening that was occurring in the city of Ephesus. The Ephesians were flocking to Christ. They were getting filled with the Holy Spirit. They were renouncing their former idolatry. 
This was the city where they burned their occult paraphernalia and their occult literature. The entire city was stirred up for Christ's sake. Paul just couldn't leave. Not yet. A great and effective door for the gospel had opened up to Paul, and he wanted to walk through that open door before it slammed shut. But I want you to notice, with open doors come many adversaries. We like the open doors. Not so much the adversaries. Once there was an old pastor who stated, everywhere Paul went, he started a riot. Everywhere I go, they serve me tea. Like Paul, an effective minister for Jesus will be a lightning rod for both open doors and door slammers. You see, the two go hand in hand. Where God is doing a great work, the devil will muster a stout opposition. Paul kept his eyes on the open doors, not the door slammers. You and I should remember to do the same. And then verse 10 tells us, Now if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear. For he does the work of the Lord as I also do. Therefore, let no one despise him. Of course, Timothy was Paul's trusted ally. But Timothy had a problem. You remember what it was? Timothy was a bit timid. You remember what Paul wrote to his young protege in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Timothy needed to be reminded. Some people are bold by nature. They need to learn a little restraint. But others of us, like Timothy, are shy and apprehensive. Timothy needed to be reminded to buck up and to be bold and to have a backbone. And if ever there was an intimidating destination for Timothy, it would certainly be his journey to Corinth. For Paul had said some hard things to this church. Timothy wasn't sure what kind of reception to expect. And thus Paul instructs the Corinthians to submit to his authority, to receive him. He says, he does the work of the Lord as I also do. And then, but send him on his journey in peace, that he may come to me, for I am waiting for him with the brethren. And then we're told in verse 12. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren. But he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, we will come when he has a convenient time. He will come when he has a convenient time. Apollos was the Bible teacher who came to Corinth after Paul had planted the church. You remember he mentioned this earlier in Corinthians. In chapter 3, verse 6, Paul had said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Each of them had played a role in the church at Corinth. And here we have an interesting window into the interaction of the apostles. We learn that the early church had no hierarchy or apostolic pecking order. Paul was certainly a spiritual heavyweight, yet Apollos here feels free to disagree. And Paul saw his opposition as legit. you got to feel the passion in verse 12 you got to put yourself back when they had that conversation. Paul strongly urged Apollos to go to Corinth. You wonder what it sounded like. 
He strongly urged him. But then Apollos was quite unwilling. You've got to imagine what that sounded like. He was quite unwilling to take heed to Paul. Strongly urging. Quite unwilling. Could have erupted into a division, but it didn't. Apparently, Paul relented. He ended it by saying, he'll come when it's convenient. And you know, this happens among Christians even today, does it not? Sincere believers often disagree. As long as it's not an essential of the faith, we need to learn to disagree agreeably. And then Paul tells the Corinthians in verse 13, Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. What a challenge to us. He says, watch. Be on the lookout, man. We have an enemy who is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He litters your path with traps and pitfalls. Be on your toes. Walk gingerly, carefully, lest you slip up and fall. And then he says, stand fast in the faith. See, it's not enough just to have faith. We need to continue in that faith. The point is to finish the race. Hey, your faith can fade down the backstretch. You can pull up short. You can fail to cross the finish line. That's why you need to stand fast. Be firm. Don't back down. And then he says, be brave. Literally, in the Greek, the phrase means, act like men. Now, this doesn't mean we all have to start acting macho like like John Wayne or something. Put the bad guys on notice. Act all macho and all. No, men are supposed to be the leaders in their home and in the church. Thus, to act like a man means to take responsibility, to be a leader, to stand up for others, to set the pace and pave the way for other people to follow. Hey, you might even be a girly girl. Feminine and all ladylike. But when it comes to faith, we all need to act like men. Reminds me of a six-year-old little girl named Ruby Bridges. In 1960, a federal judge ordered New Orleans public schools to open their doors to African-American children. Six black children were chosen to integrate William Franz Elementary School. But the uproar was so severe, only one child chose to attend. Every day, little Ruby walked to school with four federal marshals at her side. Through a crowd of screaming white folks who were throwing things and even shouting insults at this little girl, no less. One woman put a black baby doll in a wooden coffin and paraded it in front of the school. The meanness was awful. And yet most days, Ruby prayed for her tormentors. For Jesus to forgive them. U.S. Marshal Charles Burks remembers Ruby. She showed a lot of courage. She never cried. She didn't whimper. She just marched along like a little soldier. At the time, psychologist Robert Coles took note of Ruby's bravery. He quoted her mom as saying, There's a lot of people who talk about doing good, and a lot of people who argue about what's good and what's not good, But there are other folks who just put their lives on the line for what's right. That's what this means. To be brave. 
Are you willing to put your line, your life on the line for what's right? This is what Paul is challenging the Corinthians to be, to be brave, to act like men. And his words apply to both little girls and grown men. He also says, be strong. As Paul said to the Ephesians, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Our greatest strength is found in the Lord. And then he says, let all that you do be done with love. Love is the most powerful force on the planet. It's the greatest change agent known to man. Love can melt a heart. Love can stiffen a backbone. And all we do, show love. Now realize all these terms here in verse 13 are military jargon. Watch. In other words, post a lookout. Stand fast. That means march in ranks. Keep ranks. Act like men. Take responsibility. Be strong. Don't flinch when you're attacked, when you're in the heat of the battle. And do all you do with love. We fight evil with good. We resist our enemies with love. And then Paul tells them in verse 15, I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia. Now, Achaia was the Greek region around Corinth, and the family of Stephanus were the area's first converts to Christianity. He says, And that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you also submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. Apparently, Stephanus was not only the first believer in the area, he was also the pastor of the church at Corinth. He and his family had founded this church. And here Paul encourages the Corinthians to submit to its local leadership. When you do that, it makes it easier on the pastor. Did you know that? It does. Stephanus' ministry was an extension of Paul's. And so Paul says, recognize the legitimacy of his ministry. Follow him. Submit to his authority. Now remember earlier in Paul's letter here to the Corinthians, he had rebuked them for rallying around celebrities. Some had said, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas. And here Paul tells them, hey, you need to forget the superstar pastors. You need to forget those celebrity pastors. You need to support your local pastor. You need to stand by the faithful pastor, the guy like Stephanus, who labors in the trenches and stays committed to the church in the good times and in the bad times. Not the slick guy with a novel approach who sort of sweeps in and impresses everyone, then leaves before you really get to know him. Don't be duped by star-studded resumes. Follow the guy who remains faithful. And then Paul says in verse 17, I'm glad about the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, for what was lacking on your part they supplied. For they refreshed my spirit and yours, therefore acknowledge such men. Now this was the trio that had actually prompted this letter. They had visited Paul in Ephesus and had reported to him on the problems that existed in the church at Corinth. Now they're returning with this letter, with the answer that Paul had to all of these problems. Paul knows that they could be branded as tattletales or even worse. So here he urges the church 
to show these three men great respect. They were a refreshment to Paul and to the church. And then he says, the churches of Asia greet you. You remember Paul was writing this letter from Ephesus, the chief city there of Asia Minor. He says, Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. Aquila and Priscilla had moved to Ephesus with Paul. Now notice here, Aquila and Priscilla, they're at it again. Everywhere you find this couple in the New Testament, they are hosting a church in their house. Here are two people that had opened both their hearts and their home to the Lord and to His church. Prior to Ephesus, Aquila and Priscilla had lived in Corinth. It was there that they met Paul. They had journeyed with Paul back to Ephesus. Now they're sending their greeting back to their friends in Corinth. Remember, for the first three centuries, 300 years no less, the church grew, Christianity grew, without the aid of church buildings. There were no cathedrals, there were no church buildings. The early believers met in homes, often not more than 30 people. I love what author Max Licato writes. He says, long before the church had pulpits and baptistries, she had kitchens and dinner tables. Even a casual reading of the New Testament unveils the house as the primary tool of the church. Not everyone can serve in a foreign land, lead a relief effort, a volunteer at the downtown soup kitchen. But who can't be hospitable? Do you have a front door? A table? Chairs? Bread and meat for sandwiches? Congratulations! You've just qualified to serve in the most ancient of ministries, hospitality. It is no accident that hospitality and hospital come from the same Latin word, for they both lead to the same result, healing. When you open the door to someone, you are sending this message, you matter to me and to God. You may think you're saying, come over for a visit, but what your guest hears is, I'm worth the effort. Well, in verse 20, we're winding down. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now in his paraphrase, Englishman J.B. Phillips, he renders this verse, I should like you to shake hands all round as a sign of Christian love. And I get it. I guess a modern handshake is probably the cultural equivalent of an ancient kiss especially for dudes. Yet five times in the New Testament, five times no less, we're told to greet one another with a holy kiss. Now granted, the kiss needs to be holy. Not lustful, not sensual. But apparently, a greeting needs to be more than just a nod. It needs to be sincere and it needs to be expressive. Perhaps we miss out on the warmth that humans need by limiting our greetings to a mere handshake. Well, if not a kiss, there's nothing wrong with a hug. At least a pat on the back. And if you want to stick with a handshake, just make sure it's a hearty handshake, would you? And then verse 21 tells us, 
This salutation with my own hand. Pause. Now understand the construction of the letter that the Corinthians received. This is not like us receiving an email or a letter in the mail. It was written on papyrus. The letter itself was written on papyrus, and it came as a scroll. Because of Paul's likely eye problem, his letters were dictated to a stenographer. The writing was continuous. There were no spaces between the words or between the sentences. In the typical ancient text, the script was in block columns, and all the letters were probably capitalized. Also, in the first century, forgeries were a real problem. That's why after the dictation, Paul would take the pen from the hand of his scribe and he would affix his own signature. This was his mark of authenticity. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 17, Paul explained that this was what he did with all of his letters. And here he does the same, the salutation with my own hand. Pauls. And then he writes, If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. The Greek word here is quite strong. Accursed is the word anathema, which means condemned. Jesus is God's only provision for sin. He did on the cross what no one else could do. He paid for our forgiveness. He purchased for us God's righteousness. If you don't love Jesus, then you are doomed for destruction. And then Paul adds an Aramaic phrase. In the original, it's Maranatha, or, O Lord, come. Aramaic was the local language of Judea. It was the language that Jesus spoke. And Maranatha became one of the earliest distinctively Christian terms. An article of faith in the early church was the belief in Jesus' soon return for His church. Anathema to those who don't love Jesus, but to those who love Him, they'll want to see Him. So Maranatha, He's coming. Paul closes his letter to the Corinthians with his salutation. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen.